So I've, I've been asked to speak briefly, and I hope it'll just spark the larger conversation, but to add some local perspective, and particularly to focus on um, the experiences of Indigenous people with the criminal justice system in Canada. So I think um, you could tell actually uh, quite a similar story about the experience of uh, Black Canadians with um, the criminal justice system, particularly in Toronto, also in Halifax, also in other places in Canada. Um, I'm unfortunately not the, the person to tell that story. I'm probably not the person to tell the, the story of the experience of Indigenous people either, but it's what I study, and, and um, so I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, the comparison between what I study, which is Indigenous people and criminal justice in Canada, and the mass incarceration of African Americans in the States is a comparison I get asked about all the time. Um, partly, I think it, it seems logical to people. Um, partly, even in Canada, we're more familiar with uh, the discourse about mass incarceration than we are familiar with problems within our own system of criminal justice. Um, and there are a lot of similarities that are worth paying attention to. Um, so a lot of the things that um, Professor Foreman talks about in his book um, uh, are, are true of the experience of Indigenous people with, with uh, Canadian criminal justice, including things like um, a history of underprotection with over-policing. So the police not showing up when you're a victim of crime, not taking your concerns seriously, but um, focusing more of their law enforcement attention on your community. That's, that's been historically true for Indigenous people. Um, you see that with the um, the belated attention to uh, violence against Indigenous women and girls, for a long time, um, the police just weren't there for, for Indigenous people. Um, you see it with racial profiling. Um, you see it um, particularly with over-incarceration. So um, we, we're we all familiar with mass incarceration in the States and the over-incarceration of, uh, uh, of Black Americans. Um, Proportionately, we actually over-incarcerate indigenous people more than the United States does. So if, if, the, if the ratio was similar, you'd have a, an American prison system with 80% um, uh, black prisoners. So the, the proportions in Canada are really off the charts crazy. Uh, the numbers aren't so bad because we don't, in Canada, lock up nearly so many people as they do south of the border. But we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back too much for that because we only really look good in comparison to the Americans. You do international <laughs> comparisons <laughs> elsewhere, and we're, we're a pretty punitive um, justice system as far as Western justice systems go. Um, so there are a lot of um, parallels there. But um, it's, it's also a really different um, case and, and a very different experience. And so I don't think you could tell a similar story to the story in Locking Up Your Own about indigenous people in Canada. And I think that's an interesting thing and worth, worth thinking about. Why is it that um, this story um, can be told in the States and, and can't be told here? Um, basically, the, the point I'm trying to make there is that you don't see widespread support in Indigenous communities or amongst Indigenous political leaders for punitive criminal justice policies. That dynamic whereby you actually had um, black citizens writing letters, you had black political leaders passing punitive laws, and, and uh, majority black police departments with, with black police chiefs enforcing these punitive laws. Why is it that that dynamic um, doesn't exist in the case of indigenous people in Canada? Um, so uh, I have a couple of suggestions I, I want to make about that. Uh, but first, 
one, one obvious answer is that there's no Washington, D.C. in Canada. So the, the story is, is mostly in Washington, D.C., where you've got a large, um, a large American city that does have a, a majority black population, um, and where um, pretty much as soon as um, there, there were political rights for the black population, you had um, black political control of, of that city. Um, that just doesn't exist in Canada. We, we don't have any major cities with um, even particularly large proportions of the population being Aboriginal. I think that the highest proportion might be Prince Albert, um, which even the Canadians in the room are all looking blankly at me. It's the third largest city in Saskatchewan, but that means it's <laughs> 25,000 people and it's about 40% Aboriginal. So um, the, the cities that have the highest Aboriginal populations on the prairies, it's often maybe 10 or 15% of the population. And there's historically been very low participation in mainstream political institutions by indigenous people. So you just, you don't have a test case whereby uh, indigenous people did control the apparatus of mainstream criminal justice. But beyond that, I think even if you did have that, you wouldn't see the same story. And I wanna suggest two major reasons for that. The first is the relative emphasis in struggles for justice um, on integration and separation when you compare the American story and, and the Canadian story. And the second is, is the existence of indigenous legal traditions. So first off, what do I mean by this, this focus on integration and separation? And uh, uh, I want to apologize for using crude dichotomies like this. It's a, a factor of time. But I do think that there's, there's a, a, a thrust to the struggle for justice, uh, particularly in the United States, particularly with the civil rights struggle, that the struggle was for um, integration into American political society on fair terms of cooperation. So the struggle was to be fully fledged American citizens and to stop the racial discrimination. Um, and if that's the terms of the struggle, there's a contingent connection to criminal justice reform, which is unless you stop having such a biased criminal justice system, black people are never going to be um, treated equally as citizens, right? Unless you stop stopping and frisking people all the time, unless you stop locking up or, or putting one in three young black men under criminal justice supervision, you're never going to have equal citizenship, whatever the Civil Rights Act says. Um, but it's contingent. So there's nothing about that struggle for integration that means black political leaders won't pass punitive criminal justice laws if they think that's what's going to protect their constituents. And there's nothing about that that says that black police officers won't engage in police brutality. So I think Professor Foreman did a great job in, um, in the book of illustrating that you've got one group of people pushing for criminal justice reform and a pretty different group of people entering the police force because they need jobs. And so they're not in the police force to reform it from the inside and to make it less punitive. They're there because it's, it's a good job and that's what they need. And they may become acculturated to the norms of policing in that force and those norms might be quite brutal. Um, the experience in the United States, and, and this was one thing I found extremely interesting about the book, there were some experiences of separate criminal justice systems for, for African Americans, um, but they were all separate but unequal. It was all part of segregation. So you had these lesser police forces set up with minimal powers to sort of govern black communities, but black police officers couldn't arrest white people. 
So that's not a model that's going to be capturing the imagination of anybody who wants reform now. So the push is not for any kind of separate criminal justice system. In the case of indigenous people in Canada, the, the history is really different, and so the push is really different. The push has been for more control over criminal justice, particularly over policing, but also over um, justice systems, over not prisons, but alternatives to prisons. Um, and so the idea there has been the problem is somebody else is policing us in a colonial fashion, right? This is an external authority using force to impose their will on us. So the police aren't, it, it's not even just the police don't care enough to show up for us, it's that there's nothing about the police's mandate that is that they are there to serve us. They are there to control us as a, as a subordinated colonial population. So what we need is police forces that are accountable to indigenous communities. And so that's what the push has been for. And when those police forces have been put in place, we have this program called the First Nations Policing Program that provides some very limited funding for, um, for indigenous police organizations that are accountable to their local communities. Um, you see them engaging in policing in a very different way because the whole structure of the policing has been changed. It's not just a matter of hiring indigenous officers into pre-existing police forces and hoping that they'll change. It's a matter of setting up the entire mandate of what the police are supposed to be doing to respond to local communities. So that, I think, is, is one major difference. The second um, huge difference, and this is something we discussed a bit earlier as well, is that um, indigenous communities were distinct political communities uh, prior to colonization, and they had uh, pre-existing legal traditions. And so a lot of the push for control over criminal justice is a push to return to indigenous approaches to justice. And again, with the, the crude dichotomies, broadly speaking, those are more restorative and less punitive than Western approaches to justice. Um, uh, I say broadly speaking, there are lots of exceptions to that. There were traditional indigenous justice systems that involved corporal punishment, that involved execution, or um, uh, banishment from communities, which are all pretty serious punitive sanctions. But um, that's not what people have been pushing for. They're not saying we want to go back to being able to engage in, in traditional forms of punishment. They're saying we want control over this to be able to engage in these restorative justice practices. So I thought it was really interesting where you ended uh, your talk, Professor Foreman, because some of those um, uh, visions of the future you were presenting have a lot of resonance with what indigenous people have been arguing for. So the idea of justice being about accountability but not vengeance. A lot of these restorative justice practices start from a place where offenders have to take accountability for their actions and they focus on that, but they work within a healing model of justice. So in some sense, calling the police about an addict on the street would be calling the health services because there wouldn't necessarily be that strong distinction between going through a criminal justice process and getting the kinds of health support you need to deal with um, your problems. Whether that's be because of the strong link between substance abuse and crime, or just because all types of crime are, are viewed more as a kind of uh, form of uh, unhealthiness that need a health system response. Um, there's also uh, something that's been put in place in, in response to both pressure from indigenous communities and to a Supreme Court ruling called GLADU reports, which are essentially a form of pre-sentencing report that's much more in-depth, that provides 
judges with the information they need in order to craft more appropriate sentences. Um, and that, I think, is, is a version of taking Dante's story, where, where people say, well, we know the story, so we understand. And the idea is, yeah, let's build that in. So let's have uh, indigenous court workers who can get into those communities to, to, to find out those stories, because often public defenders are under-resourced and aren't in the best position to, to go talk to victims and so on. So, so you have some funding that enables workers to tell those stories and to put them into the court system. There are problems with that too, but some of these pushes are, are for this kind of thing. And I think that's because um, in, in the case of Indigenous people in Canada, um, there's never been really a view that making um, things more punitive would ever help Indigenous victims or Indigenous communities. Um, so the biggest example of that would just be I mentioned, you know, there were punitive justice practices, there was all sorts of diversity, but there are no indigenous equivalents of jail. So at no point do they say that locking somebody away in a separate institution has any kind of resonance with any kind of justice practices. And their experience of that has always been negative. So one example would be um, that uh, there are huge gang problems and gangs associated with the drug trade who um, the, the gangs spread out across multiple communities and bring drugs in from cities into remote communities and, and wreak absolute havoc. But that problem was created by prison. So those gangs, the indigenous gangs in Canada, all started in prison as prison protection gangs and then spread out into communities. So from the start, there's been this recognition that um, any kind of increasing punitiveness will harm not just the people who are locked away in jail, not just you know the, the thugs that you can dismiss, but will harm the community as a whole. So that, that's all I've got to say. I went longer than I expected. But um, as I said, there's, there's a strong resonance between some of the experiences. But I think the approach has been quite different um, and in a way that can be mutually informing. You know, there's amazing work done in the States um, looking at how to fix mass incarceration that we can learn from in Canada. We, we just got rid of a government that looked at mass incarceration in the States and said, yeah, I think that's what we should do here too, right? So there's a risk of Canada going down that road, and it's worth looking at all this, this amazing experience. But I think also, uh, in terms of opening up the imagination for the future, there's, there's stuff to be learned the other way around. So thank you for the opportunity.